we talk about the season of giving. We talk about a lot of times, you know, how commercialism has perverted it. But I don't want to talk about that today because, I mean, we, we could talk about that, but it's, it's probably been done to death. I just want to talk today about the, the greatest gift that was ever given, which Christmas is a part of. And if anybody's, if it's not popping in anybody's head, the, the gift of reconciliation, okay? Now, some people would say, well, isn't that Easter? But Easter and Christmas are, are forever intertwined. They're part of the same coin. Uh, you can't have one without the other. So <clears throat> that's why we're going to talk about reconciliation a little bit and how it ties into Christmas. So by the time that Jesus has come on the scene in body. The world has been waiting. The world has been longing for, for the promise of the salvation that Christ would bring. And it was talked about in the Old Testament. So back then and now, I, I think we all can pretty much agree that, that people are fallen. If we go by the Scriptures, we most certainly are. And it was no different back then. Can you? I mean, imagine... Just think today, if what if Christ hadn't come yet and he was going to come nowadays? Would the world today fight just as much as the world back then fought to prevent him from doing what he was going to do? I mean, I'd almost guess that they would fight harder, but there's no doubt that people's nature hasn't changed. People's fallen nature hasn't changed. There was a, um, there's a painting that, I'm always running across things that are obviously old news, but for me, I'm like, oh, this is new. This is neat. There's a painting called Massacre of the Innocents that I ran across a while back. And it's, it's a picture. It's from the 18th century, and it's of this lady. She's holding her child, and she's, like, hiding behind a brick culvert. And in the background, you can barely see there's people chasing these, these women who have children in their hands. And they, they're trying to club them, is what's going on. And the woman, she's sitting there, and uh, if you ever get a chance to Google it, you should. She's just looking right at you from the painting, and she is just mortified. And she's got the baby there, and she's got her hand over his mouth, and she's you know trying to keep him from making any noise. And so this is obviously in reference to, help me out, but I think it's in Matthew, when they talk about how the children two and under were going to be killed um, after the Magi didn't come back. And um, so that is a prime example of this, is, this did not happen because Christ came. This happened because of our nature, because the sinful world wanted to prevent him from doing what he was going to do. So they tried to slaughter everybody, you know. Um, you know, it's uh, conservative estimates would say that maybe in Bethlehem at that time there might have been about 300 people. So if that's true, then there would have been about eight to ten children that they were trying to kill. Some people say it's in the thousands, but it just depends on who you look at. But either way, the point is that the world was was bucking basically at the Messiah's arrival and trying to do what it could to prevent him from doing what he was going to do. So, it's not to say that when Christ came, there was, there was a darkness because of that. 
But because Christ came, it was to show that the darkness wasn't going to win, no matter what they did. Very good painting to look at if you ever get a chance to, to check that out. <clears throat> I want to look really quickly today at the parables in Luke chapter 15. You don't have to follow along if you don't want to, but they are Luke chapter 15. There's three parables in there that we're going to look at. So starting with, starting at verse 11, that's this is the, uh, the first parable we're going to look at. And it says, And he said, A man had two sons. You guys will recognize this. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of, your, of the estate that is coming to me. And so he divided his wealth between them, and not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey to a distant country, and there he squandered his estate in wild living. So at the start of this parable, you know, we can see how all of us at some point in our life have fit into this. There's so many ways that you can relate to this if you would just admit it. And in the same token, this also shows, because this is somebody who was going to leave the estate, this, this shows how God's blessings, they fall on the just and the unjust. Uh, sometimes people will have something and you're like, man, really? Like, this guy does everything he can to go against God and he's been blessed with this. Well, it's not ours to say. So we can squander these things that God has given us, these rights that God has given us, we can say that we deserve them and then spoil them. We can, more plainly, we can, we can ignore how he's working in our lives. And we can ignore his, his call to salvation. Because we're busy, we got other things to do, we don't need it, we'll get to it later. So we can, and in the same token as well, we can also waste what he has given to us. God has given different people very different sets of skills. Talents, blessings. So these are the kind of things that this parable is hinting at. In verse 14 to 16, it says, Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country. So he's already gone. He's already out partying, living his life. And he began to do without. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent... And he sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to have his fill of the carob pods that the pigs were eating. And no one was giving him anything. And so here we see the hard times that can come upon us. You know, the hard times that can come upon us no matter how hard we're working, if we're not in line with God. If we don't have that relationship with God. Because we're not recognizing what is important. And now, these other, I mean, these type of situations too, if anybody's ever been in one of these, you know that God sometimes uses these too as a humbling point. You, may, you get made low, you get humbled real quick. So maybe you've been caught up in material things, maybe spiritual things. You know, maybe you're trying to earn your way to God with no, with no success. And you're looking at those others that are eating the carob pods, and you're thinking, I'm better than them. Why can't I be in that position? 
that's when, when ugliness really takes root and, and starts to show what kind of fruit it can produce. It's, uh, it's real easy to be jealous and to not go to God and just in humility and say, God, where am I supposed to be? You know? <clears throat> but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired laborers have more than enough bread? But I am dying here from hunger. I will set out and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired laborers. So, the son here, he's fallen, he's in the mud, he's living outside of God. And he has nothing to show for the way he has lived whether that be fruit in his life, whether that be his eternal destination. And he's realized his error. And the key for him is the same key for us. It's that he's repentant, he's become humble, and he's recognizing the authority that he went against when he did all these things. He said, I have sinned against heaven in God's sight. I'm not worthy. And for all of mankind, that is the same situation. And here he says, Lord, just let me in the door. Just let me get my foot in the door, and I'll just I'll be a worker. I don't care if I'm a son or not. Just get me in the door. That's the desperation of somebody completely fallen, completely in the gutter. Um, I can't say that I've ever hit that low, and I hope that I never do. Because that is pure desperation right there. But that is also pure humility before God. So in another way, it's a really good position as well. So verse 20-23 through here. He set out and he came to his father. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's eat and celebrate. So we see here, this is is implying at, at that infinite vision that God has not only in our lives, but in everybody's life. He knows exactly when it is you're going to come to Him. There's no surprises for God. And when you come to Him, He says here in the parable, He's going to clothe you in righteousness, in the righteousness of Christ, not in your own. He's going to adorn you in jewels, royal jewels, as the Scriptures say. And he's going to bring the best animal and celebrate. If you, know, if you really read here, you'll notice this is not the arrival of a worker. This is not the arrival of a slave. This is the arrival of a child and an heir. And this is not just for the parable, but this is in our life as well. It's hard to think that. It's hard to imagine it. But when we come to Christ, we're, we're children of God. That is a whole other level of being. We go down to... Uh, Verse 24, and it says, For this son of mine was dead 
and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. The son wasn't physically dead, right? He was not physically dead. He was still living. He wasn't feeling that great, but he was still living. But he was spiritually gone. And when he came back, we see a symbolism here for being born again. He has been born into new life, and God is celebrating that rebirth. So God is celebrating his rebirth just as he celebrates everyone's rebirth when it occurs. Now, there's a lot that you can go into on that parable. I mean, obviously, that's a very quick look at it. But the rest of the parables here on that page all have the same tune. They all talk of the same thing. So, <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry. Let me, let me finish going through that one. Uh, 25 through 31 real quick here. Where it says, now we have to talk about the other son. Now the, other, the older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring about what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to him, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected uh, a command of yours. And yet you never gave me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. So this is a, an addendum on this message here of two things. That when we are saved, that God has made us a part of the family, and that God has given everything to us. But the other part here is that we cannot be a stumbling block for others. We can't be bitter at somebody else joining the family. If you get into your flesh, if you get into your mind, you can really hit that number two kind of bad. Because everybody in their life has somebody that has wronged them. Everybody has that one person where you're like, I don't hate them, but I really want to. Right? Everybody has that. Everybody has life experiences that have been possibly really bad. But God is saying that we cannot be like that towards people. We can't be angry at their salvation. Can you imagine it? I use this all the time. I know it gets kind of burned out, but can you imagine if on his deathbed Hitler really did repent? How many people did he burn, literally? If he truly had a reborn experience, he might be your door greeter when you, when you walk through the gates. And we can't be mad about that because the kingdom of God is for everybody. The kingdom of God is for the person that mugged you in the street if they come to, to Christ. For the people that have wronged you, it's, it's for everyone. And that's something that we have to kind of keep... Keep in our minds because it's easy to, to get on our high horse. 
Um, verse 32 there, uh, where it says, but we, we had to celebrate, <clears throat> excuse me, we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. So God wants you to live. God wants everyone to live. God wants to celebrate new life if people will come to him. God wants that lost to be found. And this is that gift of Christmas. This is that gift of Christmas in Christ the Lord, where the, where the ultimate Christmas gift is found in the manger, which we all know grew up to be a man and was sacrificed on the cross and rose again. So, the other two, <clears throat> I want to read the other two parables real quick here, and then we'll be out of here. At verse 1, it says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to complain and say, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the other ninety-nine in the open pasture and go to find the one that is lost? I'm sorry, and go to the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he puts it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together with his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found my sheep that was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. Does anybody see the, the irony of the, of the 99 who don't need repentance? Everybody needs They're in their error <clears throat> right there. But like I said, God wants us to live. God wants to celebrate with us. God wants these lost to be found. And if sheep are important to people when they find them, if cattle are important to people, things like that, how much more important is a person's eternal soul? Like I said, this is the Christmas gift that God gives to us in Jesus Christ for those who believe. And let's talk about the last one real quick at verse 8, where it says, Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has it, when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is one of those things where when we read this, if we read it from our perspective today, we go, that's kind of silly. Because if I lose a penny or something, I'm not searching the house. I'm not sweeping it because Eleanor's going to find it anyways eventually when she's going around crawling. But a coin here... Um, I don't remember the actual coin title, but it's equivalent to a day's wages. So it's, what's that? Yes, yes. Yeah, it's equivalent to a day's wages. So this is not just a penny that's flipped on the ground. This is a lot of money for somebody. And if somebody is a lower class, potentially, I mean, that can make or break the bank. So this is a lot of money. This is somebody searching for it thoroughly. And when they find it, they are thrilled. 
because, like I said, it's about a day a worth of hard labor. It made me think of, uh, you ever see somebody when they, uh, I may or may not have been this person at one point, when they lose their cell phone, how frantically they're searching around the house for it or searching the grocery store looking to see where they misplaced it because that cell phone's worth hmm, a couple days' wages at least, if not more nowadays. I mean, well, there's new phones coming out that are worth $1,000, I think. Not that I have them, but so... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So phones, money, things like that, these are finite items. But God is saying, however much you value those things, I value you so much more than that. And I celebrate when you come to me so much more than how you celebrate when you find these items. So, like I said, Christmas is is a gift Yes, it's a day that we celebrate Christ's birth, but it's, it's also symbolic of a gift from God. And it's, it's, it's a gift of mercy and grace in a world that can be hard and can be tough. It can be. And the Christmas gift of Christ is eternally lived. It's not something that we have for one day, unwrap, and then it's done. This is something that we realize our entire life and our entire eternity. So while there are plenty of things that Christmas is not, and we could have talked about that way, this gift is not one of them. This is obviously what Christmas is about, and it's the greatest gift that we'll ever, ever receive from God.